Hello, this is Ken Stusen. I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. Welcome to our NOW 2020 podcast. NOW stands for Navigating Our World. We are simply trying to understand the world better, to navigate some of the most pressing questions that are shaping our lives, our culture, and our investment challenges. We are committed to sharing the views of CEOs and other leaders so that we can all learn from their perspectives on how to navigate the future. We would like to hear from you as well. We invite you to leave a review or take a moment to complete the short questionnaire on the NOW website so that we can learn from your thoughts, questions, and feedback. As we look to the future, whether we agree or disagree with each other, the one thing we know for sure is that none of us can figure this out on our own. At Brown Advisory, we are focused on raising the future, and we hope these NOW conversations will help us do just that. We're living through the most profound public health crisis any of us have ever experienced. And slowly, as we've begun to understand the full impact of coronavirus, we've come to recognize it as a mental health crisis as well. In the short term, it's a crisis of loneliness and disruption to our lives. Further down the road, there'll be other mental health challenges. As unemployment takes its toll, as we begin to deal with our grief over the many thousands who've died, as we reckon with the legacy of racial violence and discrepancy in health outcomes. And, perhaps as much as anything, as we come to understand our sense of belonging in these very changed circumstances. Whether it's family, community or work, our relationship with these pillars of our lives and our well-being will be altered. A generation ago, most of us would have focused solely on our physical health. I'm Bertie Thompson, I'm a partner at Brown Advisory, and I'm delighted to say that we're also now focusing on our mental well-being, and we are having conversations about mental health openly and candidly. Whereas in the past, our employers would have said, that has nothing to do with us. Companies today know that the mental health of their people is very much their business. But that's not to say that we always know how to approach these issues, how to have conversations with people about how they are really doing, how to factor mental well-being into our culture and our workplaces. All of that was true before the pandemic, and it will be much more so afterwards. So it's been an amazing and thought-provoking experience for me to bring together three true experts in this field. Ray DePaolo is the co-director of the Mood Disorder Center at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Richard Frank is a professor of health economics at Harvard Medical School. And Kristen Roby Dimlow is a vice president at Microsoft, where she runs employee benefits and is responsible for the company's enlightened mental health programs. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. So we are dealing with triple simultaneous crises, the pandemic, the economic crisis, and also the recent racial violence. What do you think these impacts are having on our collective mental health? 
I would say that uh, certainly there's uh, essentially three buckets of uh, issues here. The first one is that people on the front lines of medical care, people in the heavily affected communities uh, are actually facing a, quite a bit of trauma as they face um, loss of loved ones, seeing many members of their communities grieving. Those have become somewhat traumatic events in terms of the impact of COVID. Second, there's the um, racial unrest. There's the trauma of people uh, being killed, the threat to uh, certain minorities, the impact of the uh, sort of some of the violence. Uh, those create trauma, they create uh, anxiety and, and, and some despair. And then third is the broader impact uh, on the population of the dramatic economic downturn. Uh, it's long been recognized that when the economy uh, turns uh, downward, and particularly dramatically downward in the form of uh, unemployment, you get a lot of depression and anxiety. Kristen. How are you addressing mental wellness at Microsoft? One of the things we know about mental wellness is anxiety is tremendously dangerous <laughs> when it comes to mental wellness because, you know, we have learned that uncertainty is worse than bad news. And it feels as if we've had wave after wave of events that are leading to tremendous um, uncertainty and anxiety in our employee population. So as you noted, first, the coronavirus, you know, the, the fear of perhaps getting sick or finding out that a family member is ill, and then um, the economic fallout of that and fear for one's job or perhaps um, one loses one's job and trying to understand what that's going to do. And then um, finally, more recently in the United States, and also we've seen the protests throughout the world in terms of Black Lives Matter and the frustration and pain and anger of continued acts of police brutality and misconduct against people of African-American or Black um, race. So it's, it's just been wave after wave. And I think when I talk to employees and, and even when I consider myself, you know, one of those would be okay, but you get all four of them and it really starts to get wearing. Ray, how are you thinking about our collective mental health, given the simultaneous crises that we are dealing with as a society? It's, it's interesting that the, these things all end up being sort of a circle, in my view, uh, and so mental health is actually one of the things that I would see also as an evolving crisis. In a sense, the only thing that's new in the picture is the, was the COVID. Uh, now, COVID brought with it economic distress, but really economic distress is familiar to us. <laughs> the other parts of that, though, are that the fear of for your health, the fear for your family's health, the fear for your future, especially economically, are... Um, certainly powerful stimuli, and they have uh, unleashed an awful lot uh, in the, what we could call the mental health arena, and there's no doubt about it. It'll certainly show up in standard things like depression and anxiety, and but it also shows up in addictions, uh, and it also shows up in a number of social behaviors. Are employees engaging more with the mental health resources at Microsoft at the moment as a result of the, the crisis? Absolutely. So when the crisis really was at its peak, when we were start really getting into the quarantining at home phase, um, we started mails twice a week from our chief operating officer. 
um, to all employees to give them information on what is going on, what can you expect, what are we hearing on the health front, how you can, you can keep yourself healthy, both physically and mentally, and then pointing people to resources that we have. So we definitely saw an uptake in people leveraging um, some of the resources that we have online. And then we also very quickly created manager-specific training on supporting employees at the time of COVID. There were a couple of them. One was facilitating a conversation with team members about anxiety and sort of taking care of themselves. Another was even thinking about our reward system. We know that that was generating anxiety for people. Every summer we have our annual uh, rewards time. And I think a lot of people, especially those maybe with small children who are balancing work from home, school from home, you know, not having a lot of support, they were feeling particularly anxious that this would impact their annual rewards. And so we put uh, COVID-specific training into our reward system so that we could de-stress managers and employees in thinking about this. We seem to be hearing more and more about the epidemic of loneliness. How are you seeing this manifest itself? Uh, When we sort of are forced to retreat into our homes and our communities, uh, uh, we're less in the world and we're less sort of touching other communities and other people, which I think uh, serves to sort of compromise our ability to understand and empathize. You know, we've known for years that simply going to church seems to be associated with getting fewer heart attacks, less Alzheimer's disease, less suicide, those kind of things that we were talking about before. And we didn't, though, exactly look at what it was about going to church And people thought, well, it was religion, it's God. And it turns out that what the thing that drives it is the is how much you go to church. If you actually go to church, it isn't what you believe so much as it is that you go and you engage with the others in in that church, that that's care that's a big part of the message. Now, the interesting thing is we might think we're overconnected right now with our kids always on their screens and social networking, which we thought was going to be a, a source of both goodwill and uh, uh, um, uh, better engagement. But it turns out there's an awful lot of the social networking that is about, well, here's what I have and uh, look at the picture of my family and, and so many people getting on there and feeling that they are, that's what they don't have. How are you seeing this, this issue sort of playing out within Microsoft and also how this kind of distributed workplace setup um, may be impacting the employees and whether that is resulting in depression, anxiety, and this kind of sense of being on your own. Well, the good news is that there's a lot that's going right. So in terms of working remotely, leveraging Microsoft Teams, and you know that, that's been a good story. Um, one of the things we do is have a daily pulse of employee sentiment. And um, we, we basically sample 4,500 employees every day to see what's on their mind. And so we adjusted that to ask some COVID-specific questions, and we learned some pretty interesting things. One is that most people feel that their productivity is quite strong. We have seen it dip as time has gone on, just because I think there's a certain amount of fatigue, and we have seen a difference between managers and individual contributors. 
So the individual contributors are reporting that they're at least as productive um, after COVID as, as before in most cases. Uh, the managers are feeling a little bit more stressed and feeling that they're putting in more hours. And I think a lot of that is this idea of connectedness, of trying to keep the team together. So in addition to having their normal set of meetings that they use to run their team, many of them are also introducing social connections or kind of virtual happy hours or virtual coffees where they get together. Um, and so I think that part has been going well. It's been really cool because this is basically a giant experiment where all of a sudden a massive amount of our workforce is now working remotely. And so we're learning a lot about what is working, what's not working. And the piece that isn't working as well is that sense of connection and the serendipity that you get from maybe seeing somebody at the coffee stand or bumping into somebody at lunch or strolling down to someone's office to say, I'm having a problem sorting this out. Can we whiteboard something together? So that is an area that we really want to learn more about. And from a product standpoint, we really want to think about how can we adjust our products to enable that kind of whiteboard collaboration and also to reduce the sense of isolation. How joined up is the sort of internal approach to mental health to the external uh, product related side of mental health within Microsoft because obviously there are a number of products that the company has such as Teams but also gaming as well with the hugely successful um, Xbox which I love to sort of think about the how the internal focus on mental health also plays out in the external product facing uh, world. I think this part has been super cool too, where, you know, everyone is really passionate in this space. And I would say for many, many years, Microsoft has been focused on accessibility in our products and really ensuring that our products can be used by everybody. Um, our, our, our mission is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. And so we really want to think about how to make our products accessible. And I'd say when we started this journey, we were thinking of more uh, traditional accessibility issues, I'd say, like maybe visual or hearing impairment. Um, maybe some physical disabilities. I think more recently, say in the last several years, we've been really thinking about mental wellness. And so you really see it play across all the products. One of the cool ones right now is workplace analytics. So workplace analytics sits on top of Outlook and Exchange, and it, it monitors how you're using your products like email. And it gives you little tips, things like, hey, during a meeting, you checked email like five times. And did you know how distracting it is for you to try to multitask? You know, I think if you take one email during a meeting, it distracts you for like 23 minutes. It's like these are the kinds of things we learn. And so um, we give people nudges on ways that they can provide themselves more focus time. The other thing you mentioned, the game studios, like they have just done a phenomenal job. Um, we have through Minecraft, we have some educational products that promote mindfulness for, for younger um, children and, and middle school years, get them to start thinking about mental wellness and social wellness, which is pretty neat. And then more recently, we have a studio in the, in the UK that's been working on, in the game Hellblade, they have a character who has some mental wellness issues. And they're promoting um, sort of understanding what triggers are and then thinking about how you can um, address those. And so there are all kinds of things. The other thing we're really big on is AI for, um, for health and for mental wellness. 
And then we have every year we have a week in the summertime called one week. And there's a giant hackathon where anybody can work on anything. So if I want to do a project, I can post that, hey, come join me, work on this project. And people from around the company will raise their hands. There's dedicated time to work on it. Um, last year as part of Hackathon, we also did Mental Wellness Hackathon. And we had an idea come out of that that's now been put into a product. What, what silver linings do you think have emerged from the, the crises that we're going through at the moment? Uh, and how have you seen them um, manifest themselves or present themselves at Microsoft? You know, we, for the last several years, we've been talking about employee holistic wellness. So physical, financial, mental, social wellness. And so a few years ago, we really tried to start to have a more open conversation with a campaign called It's Okay Not to Be Okay. And during that time, we also expanded the service levels that we have for employees to support their mental wellness. We implemented employee assistance program throughout the world. We'd always had it in the United States, but we wanted to ensure that our global employee base had access to um, counseling and, and support. We also have strong wellness benefits, health benefits. So if people need additional support through their physicians, they can get that. Um, and then we also invested in a global wellness platform that provides all kinds of tips on uh, mental wellness, financial wellness, and physical wellness. And that's been terrific because it's more self-guided. You can take a self-evaluation and see what kinds of things you need help with. And then you can, uh, you can supplement some of the other programs I mentioned with specific support on this online platform. And I think, you know, the silver lining for me on this is we were already getting an enormous outpouring of support from employees who really appreciated that we were stepping up to have more of an open conversation. And so we were already sort of making some good traction in destigmatizing mental wellness. But I think COVID has really helped us to accelerate destigmatizing and sort of providing more access and really living the value that it's okay not to be okay. As part of COVID, we packaged up all the mental wellness things we have and put them out for all employees to leverage. We also worked on manager um, toolkits so that they could have conversations with their employees and sort of discuss, you know, how are you doing? How are you balancing all this work in COVID? What can I do to support you? We've been pushing really hard with managers on setting boundaries, trying to reprioritize work. So, you know, I'm sure with every company in the world, there's with this big shift to work from home, you know, it's really stressing people from a productivity standpoint. And so trying to think about what's really urgent and needs to happen now versus what can be delayed. So there's been a lot of goodness. I'd also say we're getting pretty good at remote. So I think this whole idea of working remotely, working over Teams, um, Zoom calls, whatever people are using, people are really starting to leverage that technology in a great way to stay connected. Ray, let me ask you about silver linings. Telehealth, which is something that had been so regulated and so concerning based on legal things and licensure and so forth. So very few people did it. All of a sudden, all the regulations were taken off and we realized that we can do an awful lot of medicine, certainly an awful lot of psychiatry, through video. One is we all recognize how much better it is than the telephone. <laughs> so we do see some nonverbal behavior, but also we see that we can that people are keeping their appointments more. We have lower no-show rates for our appointments now. So uh, in fact, it, in many places, the quote budgets, hospital budgets, which have been hit hard because of lack of the usual and customary things that often psychiatry is 
well, we're right on budget. What's the matter with you guys? Okay. <laughs> so telehealth and the communicating this way, I think is a silver lining. The unity, the idea that we're all in this together is probably the big one that we want to try to, because it's the best antidote to the problems that come with polarization, fear, anxiety, and prejudice. It includes uh, encouraging people to not worry about seeking help for their mental health conditions, for example, and not waiting until they have to have a specific mental disorder uh, to seek counseling of some sort. And whether it's from their church or their family or their social worker or, or a mental health provider. It'd be great if we could move to the idea of belonging. And I guess many of these issues really come to the idea of, of where we belong within society. How do you feel that we can instill a sense of belonging at scale? If you look at conversations and surveys that are done of people who carry mental illnesses and addictions, what they seek is really things that relate to their ability to function in the mainstream of society. That is a job, um, the ability to maintain relationships, adequate safe housing, neighborhoods where they're free from the risk of victimization, protection against homelessness, uh, those types of things. And uh, I, uh, I think about those as um, requiring a kind of new politics of inclusion. That is that our treatment arrangements, uh, our support systems really have to be targeted at addressing those basic needs and figuring out how to best support the inclusion. And I think too often we focus on symptoms of illness as opposed to the functional outcomes that come from it. For my patients with depression, one of the things that happens when they get too depressed is that, of course, they stop doing anything social and they can't and eventually can't even go to work or do work when they're at work. Everybody knows about absenteeism at work and depression, by the way, and alcoholism are two large leaders there. But even because of depression in particular, there's a new term that was created called presenteeism, meaning they're present, but nothing else. And we can actually assign a cost in that way. But on the health side of it, my patients, when they start to get out of their depression, work itself is very, very valuable. Yes, it does supply the money we need to have a living, but it's it's important even at that. The other part to that is that the um, the work that's hardest for my patient at, when they do go back to work is the if they have to work on personnel issues, if they have to be a supervisor, or if they have to complain to their boss that they didn't get a fair shake, or they have to have to handle a customer's complaint. Those are the hardest parts. It's the routine parts of their work that can make them feel like, okay, I can do this again. And so that's where you want to start them, and that's where they want to go. And I want to get them back into something that they can succeed at. So for a company like Microsoft that's been so incredibly successful, how does the company think about instilling this sense of belonging? So, you know, coming back to our purpose of empowering every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more, like we really need to involve everyone. We really need people to feel that they belong. And I think Satya and the senior leadership team have done a phenomenal job of really thinking about building a culture that's aligned to that purpose. You know, so one of our big culture pillar, well, two, I'll point out, one is um, growth mindset. 
and the other is diversity and inclusion. And I think both of those really drive this sense of inclusion. And growth mindset, for example, in, in former Microsoft times, there was a real focus on individual excellence. And even our own performance management systems really focused on the individual. But what we've learned is really when you're building um, technology, when you're trying to have inclusive design, you really need to encourage people to come together and work together and make you know sort of every individual understand in this world that is moving so fast with so much uncertainty that no one person has all the answers and we're sort of better together engaging others and being open to having conversations and even uncomfortable conversations and challenging each other, but doing so respectfully. The other one is diversity and inclusion. So, you know, when I talk to our CDO, our chief diversity officer, we talk about how the more diverse we become, the more important it is for inclusion. So, you know, if you cannot come and be yourself at work, if you have to cover, if you can't, if you're not comfortable in the way things are done, you're not going to be at your best. You're not going to get the most out of somebody. I would say we've been on a journey for several years, but the recent incidents in the United States against African-American and black communities, so more recently with George Floyd's murder, it's really been sort of this deep moment of introspection for all of us. And I think for the senior leadership team to think about how can this be? And we can't, we cannot live up to our full potential um, and our purpose if we don't ensure that there's a, there's a fair and equal and just playing field for everybody. And on this topic of resource allocation, how do you think we could reallocate dollars more effectively within public policy, Richard? Well, we spend a tremendous amount of our money um, on uh, treating people in very intensive settings. Broadly speaking, you know, that involves residential care, that involves uh, hospitalizations, and to some extent that also involves uh, using uh, jails and prisons to house people with mental illnesses. And I think that what we've learned from the COVID uh, experience has been in part that we can accomplish a tremendous amount by using more direct, less intensive methods that touch people directly. And I think we've also learned that there are promising developments in communities, at least around the United States, where um, intervening early getting the uh, police and community programs to interact differently, creating crisis response units, can all head off uh, very expensive, uh, very disruptive kinds of expenditures if we're uh, planful and thoughtful about it and make the best use of the evidence that's out there. Uh, So, you know, telehealth, crisis interventions, mobile treatment, um, uh, greater emphasis on community supports. All of them, I think, uh, would lead us to happier outcomes uh, for the same amount of money by reallocating them. And as we look to the future, what do you think we can do as individuals to improve mental health in the community? I think we can uh, do several things as citizens. Um, 
first of all, I think we can, uh, through our voting and our political expression, support the things that are the programs and the investments that are most likely to uh, support people when they are touched by mental illnesses and addiction. And I think in part that is a recognition that actually most of us are at risk for this. This is like thing people, people of all walks of life are touched by mental illness. And I think one of the uh, real tragedies of the stigma is that there is a, um, an us and them created by the stigma. But if you, you know, if you ask anybody you know, Almost all of them have relatives, friends, neighbors who have been touched by mental illness and in many cases had their lives majorly disrupted by it. So I think that's one important step. I think a, a, a second important thing is not to allow ourselves to be affected by the fear and the stigma of mental illness. Uh, you know, very often many people who would vote to support mental health programs are also people who would oppose having a um, community treatment program in their neighborhood. And so I think uh, learning to be more tolerant, understanding how you can work with uh, civil society to try to support people in the neighborhood and, and to keep everybody safe is, I think, a better way to address that than to sort of essentially continuously try to separate oneself. Kristen, we've been talking about destigmatizing mental health. Microsoft is really at the vanguard in thinking about mental wellness. What suggestions do you have for other business leaders? So I would encourage senior leaders and you know CEOs and CHROs at other companies to lean into the conversation and make it okay to not be okay. And be vulnerable if you're willing to share your own experiences. Um, I'm also fortunate that at Microsoft, I have an amazing wellness team. We have an amazing accessibility team. We have an awesome diversity and inclusion team. They all work together um, to provide services and support to our employees. And then we also have amazing product leaders who are really thinking about inclusive design. We've been working so hard with our managers to encourage them to have empathy for their teams and for themselves, establish boundaries. We're telling managers like, hey, if you take a staycation day, put it on your oof message, your out of office message, so you're really clear with your employees that it's okay to take time off and decompress. So I think there are all kinds of things. You don't need to have a really fancy program. There, there are so many resources, but I would start by modeling at the top that it's okay not to be okay. So please, you know, for all of you out there, um, start the conversation. You're gonna see that it accrues to greater productivity, wellness, and engagement for your employee population. Kristen. Richard, Ray, thank you so much for your time and your insights. This is an important issue and one I really care about, both as an individual, a father, a colleague, and as an investment manager with a keen interest in understanding how our minds work. I've learned a lot by talking with you, and you've given us all a lot to think about. Next week, we'll be back with another Now Conversation, and I hope you can join us. 